So a number of years ago, um, I had the opportunity to go to the Shannonville Speedway and do a racing school. And this was a uh, exciting opportunity for me because I've always been really interested in, in cars and performance driving and I'm a real gearhead and I enjoy it. So we would uh, be in the race tower overlooking the track and we would spend hours and hours in class learning about uh, racing and uh, there were some maths involved and all these sorts of things. We, were, we had 12 hours in this class and you had 12 hours on the track. Well, at one point while I was uh, on the track uh, racing, sorry, the way that they would do this is you'd learn, some, you'd learn a principle for a couple hours, you'd go out and practice it and you'd go back and forth. And so after learning this one principle, we went out on the track to put it into practice and I was going around this one corner and I was going way too fast and I went off and the, the car was just sliding into the dirt and there was this little waterfall of, of mud cascading into the open window, landing in my lap, covering the car in dirt. And I realized that I had a lot more knowledge about performance driving than wisdom and the ability to apply that on the track. We've been going through wisdom literature this winter uh, all summer and we're going to head into it from now the fall through the winter we've been looking at the book of james we started last week and wisdom is the ability to put something into practice it takes something out of theory off of the blackboard and you get on the track and you live it out in your life uh, in a real way and so un uh, unlike uh, biblical knowledge which is understanding things in theory or in principle or in precept biblical wisdom is the Christian's ability to, from the rest and the grace of Christ, imitate him, emulate him. Of course, for those of you who are new to Christian faith and exploring this morning, there's no earning in any of this. Uh, we don't live great lives so that God will accept us. We desire to be imitators of Jesus because of God's grace. He's already accepted us. So there's no earning in it. It's all about imitation. And today's text is going to be uh, from James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8, where James, as I said this last week, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the passive aspects of Christian faith. Most of the entire book is all about the active aspects of Christian faith. The passive aspects are the things that we receive. Justification, right standing before God, grace, forgiveness, mercy, right? The Holy Spirit. These are things that are passive. We just sit and receive these things. James focuses on the active. Because we've received these things, how shall we now live? James being Jesus' little brother who looked into the eyes of his resurrected brother who now has an understanding that this life is not all there is, is asking the question and writing the epistle saying, if we say that we have faith in Christ, what then will that saving faith look like as it's walked out in, in, uh, in practicality. And so what we want to consider as we uh, continue our study of James and read these verses today is that we don't really get past the cross. We go deeper into the implications of the cross. We don't get past Jesus and say, well, James, you read the book of James and he only mentions really Jesus kind of in the, in, in the first comment when he says that he is uh, Christ and Lord and then he moves on. We don't, he's not really moving on from Jesus. He's moving more deeply into the implications of the life we live as a result of, of our, the grace of Jesus. And so with that in mind, we read James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously and to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, 
blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. This is God's word. As we unpack these verses, we're going to ask this text two questions. The first question is, how do we get the wisdom when we face trouble? The second question is, how is the gospel relevant in my trouble? So firstly, how do we get the wisdom? When you look at verse 5, we're called to prayer. And prayer is a wonderful resource because it builds a highway from our inadequacy to God's all-sufficiency. Prayer is this beautiful gift that we're given. And if I'm honest, growing up in the church, most of my prayers, almost all of my prayers, um, never really got beyond, dear God, get me out of this trouble. Dear God, take away this trouble. My prayers rarely got to, dear God, change me in this trouble. Dear God, do a deep work in me. Transform me. Renew me in this trouble. Give joy and resilience to me in the midst of this trouble. I rarely prayed like that. I didn't even understand prayer like that. I thought prayer was a vehicle to get what I wanted from the heavens. So the way we're to get this wisdom is to, is to pray. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more. And it says that God gives wisdom generously. That word generously, um, in the Greek, it's, it's the word haplos, which means simple. And it, it, it could also be translated literally as without folds, which is an interesting word. Why would he say God gives God gives wisdom without folds? It's not like complicated origami. It's like an unfolded I love you note. Why would James pick that word? Why, what does this even mean? Well, as you read through the entire book of James, you find that um, they actually had a problem in the church, and that was believing that God favored people who were sophisticated. God favored certain classes of people, certain socioeconomic classes, certain ra- uh, uh, races. This church had a problem with class division that was resulted in both socioeconomics and race. And there was an idea that God really favored you if you're sophisticated. Economically, uh, you know, in terms of your education and theologically, you were favored. So it's interesting. He says, God gives generously. There's no folds here. This is not complicated. Anyone who is a child of God, not particular sophisticated children of God, who are they? Any of God's children can come to him and he gives generously. And so he's tearing away this false idea that God is somehow discriminatory in the way that the church was being discriminatory. And we'll explore that in further weeks. So um, this wisdom is not available to certain children, but all children. And then it goes on to say it's not only generous, but God gives it without reproach. Some of your English translations say without fault. Um, You could also faithfully translate the Greek um, reproach, uh, the word is anandizo, and you could also translate it t- to say, he's not drawing any attention to the fact that you don't deserve this. God will give you wisdom without drawing any attention of the fact that you don't deserve his help, that you actually deserve the trouble that you're in. He does not do that. Uh, it's just amazing and incredible grace. Um, he doesn't draw the attention uh, to the fact that we're actually deserving whatever we're, we're into. I want you to think about this in human terms. If you've ever messed up relationally with somebody over and over and over. So all of you who are married, you already understand this because we've all done this. Marriage can only work if you, there's two really great forgivers involved. But even if you're not married and you're a single person, you've got beautiful friendships and you have uh, messed up with a friend. 
over and over the same friend. What happens? The third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth time that you come to that person and you're like, I'm in trouble, will you help me? Okay, if you've lent money to somebody, two, three, four, five, six times, the seventh time they're asking you for money, you're probably not going to give generously and without reproach. You're probably not going to give, you're probably not going to give them what they need in the trouble without reminding them of how undeserving they are of the trouble. In human terms, we can't really operate this way. We have measures of forgiveness and measures of grace, but it's not scandalous. Like God's forgiveness is on a level you and I can't imagine because the truth of the fact is we, we don't do that. You come to somebody for help and they're like, the year was 1985, you were 10. And then they proceed to tell you how, why they don't deserve the help before they give you the help. There's really good news here in this. God knows how difficult it is for us to trust him. God knows that you and I, everybody here this morning, Redeemer family, all of us at various points are miserable failures at trusting God. He knows this. And he knows we have a tendency to trust in puny gods and crawl back to him. And the good news of the gospel, the the reality of the forgiveness of Jesus, what it means is in that moment of trouble when you crawl back to God and you're like, oh God, forgive me. Uh, I need you. Help me. He doesn't, read you the riot act, he gives you a ring. He doesn't rip you a new one, he gives you a robe. We're like the prodigals coming back and he's the father who's just waiting for us to return to him. That's a scandalous level of generosity to dispense, to give his wisdom, uh, even though we don't uh, deserve it. It's just amazing because once God pardons you, there's no end to that pardon. And the psalmist understood this and he proclaimed it beautifully in Psalm 103 where he says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who love him. For he knows our frame and he knows that we're dust. It's amazing. He knows how weak we are, but he's going to give us the wisdom anyways when we seek him. So in hard times, in dark days, in the trouble you have to deal with on Monday as this next week begins, go to God, turn to him in prayer because he gives wisdom from generosity and gentleness. This is how he is towards you. It's such amazing grace. Verse six goes on to say that when we do pray, our prayer is to be in faith without doubting. Believe and don't doubt. So what does that mean? Does that mean just pick something that you need, look at the situation, decide how you think it should turn out, and then psych yourself up to really believe God for it, and then only speak positively about it, and only think positively about it, and confess it, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. Is that... What this means, believe without doubting. Does it mean any of these things? That's really kind of like a, a, a modern idea, construct of sort of positive thinking, but it, it doesn't mean this at all. When you think about people who have had a crisis of faith, and I've, I've sounded like this too in my life, you'll hear them say things like, I tried prayer, it doesn't work. I tried God, it doesn't work. I tried Christian faith, it doesn't work. There's this, there's this pragmatism about it. I tried it and, it and it didn't work. What's wrong with that? Well, the problem, of course is not with God. The problem is not with prayer. The problem is if you think that, if you think that prayer and if you think that uh, faith, this faith without believing, or sorry, faith without doubting um, is a vehicle to get what you want, um, then in that equation, that makes you God. And you're just trying to bend the heavens uh, to your will. But we don't have a heavenly genie who grants wishes. 
We have a heavenly father who faithfully guides us. And so we don't relate to God in prayer like he's a genie, but a father, a wise and loving father who loves and, and, and cares for us. And so in prayer, this prayer of faith is not believing that God will do the thing that we're asking him to do. The prayer of faith is believing that whatever God chooses to do, it is the loving and wise thing to do. It is what we most need for him, and that is what he's going to do, and trust that that is good. That is the prayer of faith. Um, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, he said this, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. But for the modern, the cardinal problem of human life is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is a technique. Is he, prayer is not a technique. Prayer is not a technique to bend the heavens to our wishes, but rather prayer is the vehicle through which God uses to conform our hearts, our lives, our minds to his interpretation of reality. Because once you have God's interpretive re- interpretation of what's going on, of your trouble, how you're in it, what's go- why you're in it, you're able to act with wisdom. And so notice what it says. If we doubt, it's being described as being tossed, driven and tossed by circumstance. And so the person who doubts that God is good, the person that, it's not, oh, I doubted the thing I asked for and I jinxed it. I doubted my prayer and I jinxed it. It's doubting God's goodness. It's doubting God's character. It's doubting that if you pray for something and God gives you the opposite, that he's somehow wiser than you are. It's doubting him. And so what the text is saying is you're going to be driven and tossed if you doubt him because you're not going to, and then the text says you're not going to receive anything from God. Why won't you receive anything from God? Because in the middle of the storm, while the waves are crashing, you're clinging to some tiny thing other than God, trusting it like it's God, listening to its wisdom, their wisdom, like their God. It says, don't let that person think they'll, they'll, they'll uh, receive anything from God. And so what God wants to do in the midst of our trouble is give us joy. If you read from the beginning, which was last week's sermon, the context of, of uh, this uh, trouble is that God wants to give us joy in it, resilience uh, in it. And so the reason why this is so important, of course, is because faith is not a formula to get something new. This faith is a gift that God gives and uses to make us new. So in verse 8, it says uh, something else. James uses a powerful descriptor, and he says that when we do doubt God's character, doubt God's goodness, um, which is to essentially say, I'm pretty sure I'm wiser than you. I'm going to go elsewhere for an answer because you don't have it. So when we get in that space, uh, James calls it double-minded. And by the way, he's not talking about Christians versus non-Christians, believers and unbelievers. He's talking about Christians who choose to turn to God and Christians who choose to turn to something else. And so he says that those Christians are double-minded. They have two competing allegiances. He says, don't have two competing allegiances. Don't be double-souled, double-minded. Have your, your, um, your trust going in two different directions. So here's the question. Do you and I go to God for wisdom and trouble? Or is our only use for God in so much as he takes away our trouble? James is provoking us to consider, wait a second, do I have two competing allegiances here? Right? Is part of my heart, my mind, my soul saying, take this problem to God. And the other part of it is turning elsewhere and making that little thing God. Is that going on? 
Because to doubt God calls his character into question. Therefore, when we doubt God, the wisest thing we can do is call our own allegiance into question. What do I trust? Where do I go for hope? What am I clinging to for security? What am I telling myself at night? Everything's going to be okay because of this. What am I telling myself? What is that this? And so that's what's happening. What's happening is there's the trouble that's happening to us and there's the interpretation we have of what's happening to us. This has been going on since Genesis. I'll give you an example. What we need is the right interpretation. We've got the trouble. We need an answer for the trouble. But before we can even walk with wisdom, we need the right interpretation of what's going on. For example, go right back to Genesis. And um, what's happening? God's giving them everything. He says, don't touch that tree because I'm giving you everything. And the way for you to enjoy everything is to know who God is. And the way for you to know who God is, is for me to put this limitation here to be like, by the way, that's the line. Enjoy everything. And the way to enjoy everything is to have me at the center of everything. Don't touch the tree. That's what's happening. What's the devil's interpretation? God's holding out on you. What is the interpretation that Adam and Eve chose to believe of the situation? God is holding out on us. So there was what was actually happening and then there was their interpretation of what was happening. And because they chose the devil's interpretation, they did not act with wisdom. They chose autonomy, divine treason, and then, you know, sermons on Genesis 3 abound, right? So what's going on with you and I on Monday with the various trouble that we're dealing with? Well, there's the thing that's happening and then there's our interpretation of that thing. So can we have God's interpretation on that thing. And the only way for that to happen, of course, is for us to, from the rest and of God's grace and the enjoyment of God's grace and the knowledge that we are his children, from that place, go to his word so that his word will faithfully guide us. James has an assumption, of course, that we, are, that we read the word and know the word and there's a resource of God's word <coughs> so that we can look on this thing and have God's word the ethics of uh, the wisdom of scripture guide and navigate us. We need God's interpretation on that thing. If we don't, then we're definitely going to be double-souled. We're definitely going to be double-minded. We're definitely going to uh, have two different allegiances and it's going to be very difficult for, for those Christians. It's going to be impossible, actually, the text says, to receive anything uh, and to operate in wisdom because we, uh, we don't have God's wisdom. We've got the world's wisdom. You think it, it just, it's all through scripture in, in God saves the children from Egypt and what's going on? Salvation. What's their interpretation? It was better in Egypt. So what did they do? Again, they're wandering in the wilderness. We don't want to wander in the, in the wilderness. That is what we need to deal with next week, right? And so let's move on to the next question. The final question, which is how is the gospel relevant in, in our trouble? Well, it's because in order to not be double-minded, in order to uh, have our allegiance in God and our trust in God and our faiths be, or sorry, our, our prayers be prayer of faith, where we actually believe that the goodness of God, even if we can't articulate in prayer what we need, we know God will carry us through. Um, the gospel changes everything because the gospel changes how we reinterpret everything. Remember why James wrote this, right? He starts his text out by saying, Jesus Christ is theos a... Christos Kyrios. He is God and Lord, right? That's what he says. So James, who's looked into the eyes of his resurrected brother, goes, okay, well, that changes the way I think about trouble. Because the gospel means that, that this life is not all there is. The gospel, the resurrected Christ, his perfect life that he lived because we're not, his perfect trust in the Father because we're not, his 
atoning death on the cross to take away all of our sin and his divine resurrection. Uh, James is looking at his brother, first, uh, first Corinthians 15, seven, right? He's looking at his resurrected brother and going, well, this kind of changes everything. Eternity changes everything. This short 80 years on planet earth changes everything. So, so now this gospel changes the way I think about this trouble, whether it's trouble in your body, trouble relationally, trouble at work, trouble finding work, trouble with your business, right? whatever trouble you're dealing with next, next week, to dial yourself back and go, okay, now how do I need to think about this? The gospel changes everything because again, we talked about this last week, but the prevailing worldview that we live in as dealing with trouble is all there is is the now, right? The secular, the, the seaculum, right? The, this lifespan, this age, this is all there is. We're going to be motivated quite differently in how we think, act, speak, when we're convinced that this is all there is and I can't, lo- I can't lose this thing. But the resurrection changes the way that we even think about the trouble uh, that we're engaging with. The resurrection means, of course, that the brokenness of this world will be restored. That heaven is not a place that God zap fries us out of planet Earth and takes us to. No. Heaven is the restoration of all things here in the earth. Heaven is God come to earth, the return of the king, the return of Christ the king. And so what that means in the trouble is we're going to relate to it now, speak very differently to people now, make decisions, our ethics, going to be very different now based upon that truth of the gospel and of the resurrection. So consider again this phrase, being driven and tossed, right in the context of, of, uh, of this gospel. Think about it this way. Two Christians, because again, this wisdom literature is written to Christians, right? So you've got two different Christians and the same thing happens to them. Disease hits their body. The doctor says we have no answers. They lose their job, lose their career. There's a tragedy. There's a death. Happens to two different Christians. One responds with poise, one with panic. One responds in faith, one in doubt. One has a crisis. One, one is understandably and reasonably and appropriately sad and turns to God. One has a cataclysmic spiral. One goes through that Tra- tragedy with tears in their eyes, but yet joy simultaneously. What is going on with these two different Christians? One is driven and tossed and one is not driven and tossed because the gospel is something that has, is not just this theory, but the gospel is something that has been so, they have re- revisited in such a meaningful way that is being walked out in wisdom. It's, the gospel is not something you're listening to on Sunday morning and go, just tell me I'm justified. Tell me Jesus forgave all my sin and I'll just go about my life and live, live like, like there's no God. It's not theoretical. It's not on a blackboard. It's, they're out on the track going through the corners of life and saying, this is now that the rubber has literally hit the road, I need to turn to my God. I need to turn to my Jesus and let him recalibrate my heart, my soul, my mind. So that I can now engage with this trouble, this problem I'm dealing with on Monday, thoughtfully, wisely, in such a way that I resemble Christ. One Christian can have a crisis happen and speak and act in a way that is nothing like Christ. And another Christian can have the exact same tragedy occur in their life and yet desire very much to emulate Christ. 
What's the difference? One is not better than the other. James has already established that. God's generosity is not for the sophisticated. His wisdom is not for the sophisticated. It's simple. It's unfolded. It's not origami. The 10-year-old child listening to this sermon can go to school next week and operate in the wisdom of God in a tough moment at recess class and just be kind and generous and loving. The child can do that because the wisdom of God is for all of his children. And so our ability to bear trouble and be resilient in this trouble, it's connected to the wisdom of God, trusting God and allowing him to interpret our trouble. I'll give you an example as I, as I prepare to close. Because often, people will listen to teaching like this. Listen to a sermon here. I've done my best to sort of exegete a handful of verses. And not trivialize, you know, sort of infantize you and say, step one, two, three, do this. Because there's 100 people uh, in this church, in this ser- service. And this needs to be applied 100 different ways. But even as I kind of break this out, there's people who will say, that's all fine and good. But why doesn't God just... Take, if he's good, if God is good and loving, take the trouble away. Isn't that the easiest thing? I mean, if I was God, that's what I would do. Why doesn't God just take the trouble away? Doesn't seem to make any sense. I'm going to give you an example that I hope brings, brings this thing to life. In the year 1670, Isaac Newton comes up with the theory of light. And, he said, and his theory on light is that it behaves like a particle. Eight years later... 1678, Christian Huygens establishes the theory that light acts like a wave. What does the scientific community do? Light is a particle. Light is a wave. What's wrong with light? I can't believe in light. The audacity of light. It behaves like a particle. It behaves like a wave. Well, which is it? Light? No no scientists were doing this. The scientists were saying, okay, We have something bigger than our theory. We're dealing with something that's far greater than our level of understanding. And so when we're in the trouble and God doesn't take away the trouble, when we're like the Apostle Paul saying, Lord, take this thorn out of my side, and God says, no, it's actually better that it stays there. We're like those scientists. We're going... I can't believe in light. I can't believe in a God that would leave this. But is it possible that if there is a God of the cosmos that has ordered the cosmos, that the problem is not with God, that the problem is not with faith, that the problem is not with prayer. The problem is with our small theory of God, our small theory of faith, our small theory of prayer. It's too small to contain the God of light, the God who is light. We can't contain him. He can't be contained in that way. And so he... So this is why we trust him. This is why we turn to him. This is how the gospel brings quiet to our soul and enables us to act with wisdom and resemble Christ. Because a surefire way to be stressed out in life is to be convinced you know how life ought to be. A surefire way to be crushed is to be convinced you know how life ought to go. And in Christian faith, we we are given glorious resources for the trouble of life. We're given glorious resources for the hardships and the sufferings of life. Incredible resources, because this world is broken. And we, have a, we have a risen Savior who is going to restore everything that has been broken. James looked into the eyes of that risen Savior, and that formed his wisdom, and it needs to form ours. And so I'm going to borrow from St. Teresa of Avila, who said this, from the perspective of heaven, the worst life on earth is like one night in an inconvenient hotel. And we need that kind of revelation 
of the grandness of the gospel and the grandness of our God. So whatever you're dealing with on Monday, it, it shrinks in the presence of the greatness of your Jesus, of your connectedness with him by the Spirit, of God being your Father. Not a genie that grants wishes, but a Father who will lovingly guide and navigate you through whatever it is that you have to deal with on Monday. In conclusion, the gospel is relevant because as we are being instructed by this text to cry out to God and we will receive from him liberally and without reproach, on the cross, Jesus cried out to God and he received nothing because he was bearing our reproach. We are called to cry out to God and he will answer us. On the cross, Jesus cried out to God and he did not answer him because he was bearing our sin for us. When we're in trouble, what we deserve is to be left in our trouble because we're really bad at trusting God. But because of the cross, what we get is wisdom and joy and resilience in our trouble. Because united to Jesus by grace, we have been given the right to be called the children of God. So when we lack wisdom, may we ask God. He gives us generously, liberally, without reproach. And may we ask in faith, Not in faith of our great grip that we have on Jesus, but in the amazing grip that Jesus has on us. Let's pray.